Well, let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Uh, Luke, chapter 11. Uh, last week, we concluded with verse 13 as we looked at the subject, How to Pray. And uh, this morning, we continue on in verse 14 with Jesus' interactions with the crowds. Luke 11 and verse 14, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, he finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, 
but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Now your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays give you light. In the 1930s, in Harlan County, Kentucky, a group of unionized coal miners found themselves in the middle of an occupational war. Their war was with mine owners. It was a decade-long feud involving much more than a simple picket line. There were homes that were vandalized, mines that were bombed, and sadly, even people who were executed. Now, in the midst of all of that, and you know I am a fond lover of music, a song was written. It was written in the 30s while this was going on, later recorded by Pete Seeger in the 60s. First verse goes like this. They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair, which I understand was the sheriff at the time. And then they go into the chorus. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? It is that question I present to you from our text this morning. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Because Jesus says in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. He makes it emphatically clear. You are either on Jesus' side or you are on the side of those who are against him. Listen, it is theologically impossible to be neutral about Jesus. Middle ground does not exist when it comes to belief about Christ. You are either with him or you are against him. Exclusivity of Jesus as the way to God, the way to heaven, the way to eternal life is a claim that none of us can ignore. 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus said in John 14, I am the Way. I'm not a way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. He goes on to say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Peter preaching in Acts chapter 4 said, there is 
salvation in no one else except Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. You cannot remain neutral about that. These are the claims of Christ. And you are either with him or you are against him. And I start here with all of this because the issue in our text is an issue of unbelief. And Jesus says in verse 28, blessed are those who hear the word of God and believe it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and believe it. That's how salvation comes. The book of Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Blessed are those who hear that and believe it. Who hear that and believe it. And this is what Jesus has been preaching, by the way, in our study of Luke's gospel. He's been preaching about the coming of the kingdom of God through him. Some have heard the word and believed. Others have heard and rejected. Either by their objection to him or their neutrality about him. In either case, it is still a rejection. And in addressing those who are rejecting him, Jesus continues here in Luke chapter 11 to give reasons why he is the son of God and how that they can experience the blessing of God if they simply believe. And I want to give you three reasons from our text, reasons that Christ himself gives as to why you should be on Jesus' side. Why you should be on Jesus' side. That's the question that we need to be asking. Which side are we on, boys and girls? Which side are you on? Well, I'm going to give you some reasons why you need to leave this place on Jesus' side. Number one, because with Jesus there is no greater power. (laughs) There is no greater power, specifically no greater power than Jesus. Imagine what the people experienced that day. Not only was this man that Jesus encounters in verse 14 demon-possessed, but he's mute. Think about that. To be without a voice is one thing, but to have one's voice shackled by evil spirits is much worse. Yet Jesus, who possesses all authority, all power in heaven and earth, expels this demon. And when the demon leaves, the mute man begins to talk. Now, we don't know how long he had been mute. I tend to believe that this was probably a very long period of time, some of which many in his adult life had never even heard words come from his mouth. So I think it's appropriate to assume based on other exorcisms that Jesus performed and how those healed people responded that when this man began to speak, he must have praised Jesus. I am almost certain that is what he did. He praised Jesus. And the crowd standing by watching this and listening to this, they're marveling, the scripture says. That is, they're, they're wowed by what they're seeing. They're wowed by what they're hearing. It was a miracle right before their very eyes. 
But not everyone in the crowd was marveling. In fact, some were slandering, accusing Jesus of healing this man by the power of Satan. Verse 15, some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now to understand this term Beelzebub, you'd have to dive into a little bit of Hebrew culture. And in Hebrew culture, Beelzebub was often an alternative name for Satan. You know, like when we say Duke and Satan, they're about the same thing as a Tar Heel fan, right? You understand me? Okay, so this is the language. I'm just trying to wake up you, you, uh, you fans out there. Beelzebub was just an alternative name for Satan. So when, when they would call Satan Beelzebub, that's truth. But to apply this name to Jesus is both slanderous and blasphemous. Think about this. These religious leaders are saying that the only way Jesus is able to do this is because Satan is empowering him to do it. Now, Jesus could have turned away and left those accusers to their own peril, as he sometimes does. But in this case, he chooses to respond. He says, every kingdom or house divided against itself will ultimately fall. Now, we know that to be true, not only spiritually. We know that to be true domestically. We know that to be true politically. This, this is an overall general statement of life. Every kingdom, every house, every political group, whatever, when it is divided against itself, the ultimate end of that is failure. If a group of people are fighting inwardly against themselves, that group will not survive. So it makes no sense for Satan to destroy his own kingdom. It makes no sense for Satan to destroy his own power because that's what Jesus is doing by casting out this demon. He is destroying demonic forces. He is destroying evil. He is diminishing the power of Satan. Why would Satan do that? It makes no sense. And then he turns around to these Jewish leaders who by implication here, their own sons in some religious capacity had also been gifted with the ability of exorcism. And so he turns to them and he says, and what about your boys? You know, your sons who cast out demons, are they working for Satan too? The point is their accusations were hypocritical and their slander was evil self-serving, and logically absurd. So Jesus does three things. He tells them, number one, that this demon was driven out by the finger of God. By the finger of God. Look at that in verse 20. I love that phrase. By the finger of God. By the finger of God he did this. Now Jesus is choosing his words very precisely because this is a phrase that the religious Jews would have been very familiar with. Because in the Old Testament scriptures, all the way back in Exodus chapter 8, in the midst of the plagues of Egypt, 
Exodus 8.19 says that the magicians came to Pharaoh and said, let me tell you who's doing this, who's sending these plagues. This is the finger of God that's doing this. And then we see later on in Exodus chapter 31 when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It said in Exodus 31, 18 that they were written on tablets of stone with the finger of God. The finger of God. So so the religious Jews would have known this phrase, the finger of God, very well. And the fact that Jesus is using it, he he is identifying who he really is. I am God. This finger who cast out that demon is the same finger who sent the plagues to Egypt. It's the same finger who wrote down the commandments. It's the same finger who split the Red Sea. It's the same finger who's blessed your nation. I'm God. I don't work for Satan. I'm God. So instead of slandering him, they should have been falling down before him in belief and worshiping him. The second thing he tells them is that his power is greater than any power in heaven and on earth, including the power of evil. In verse 21 and 22, he gives an illustration about a, about a strong man who works hard. I was going to try to give you a visual picture of this, but it was hard to find a strong man among us. That's why we have a man up conference. He gives an illustration about a strong man who works hard with all of his weaponry to keep his possessions safe. But when one who is stronger than that strong man, that was obviously going to be played by me. But one who is stronger than that strong man comes and attacks him. Jesus says, the strong man is overtaken. The strong man's overtaken. The point is that the illustration here is Satan is a strong man. He is. We don't need to deny that. Satan is a strong man, but Jesus is the one here in the story who is stronger. He's the one who's greater. He's the one who is mightier, and he has come to destroy Satan's kingdom. Satan can do whatever he wants to in all of his weaponry. But if Jesus decides to break the doors down, Satan has no chance. He has no chance. Because Jesus' power is greater than any power on heaven, in heaven, greater than any power on earth. It is greater than any power, even the power of evil. And then the third thing that he tells them, which I think is something that we all need to just stop and think about. In verses 24 through 26, he tells them that relying on your power and your strength is the most dangerous faith you can possess. Everybody has faith. Everybody has faith. Even an atheist has faith. I just choose to put my faith in the evidence. Everybody has faith. You're a good person. You try to do do things in a morally upright way. Be a good husband, be a good father, be a good community citizen. Those are all expressions of faith. Now, it's not always an expression of faith in Jesus. A lot of times it's an expression of faith in ourselves, who we are, what we can do. And Jesus addresses that. 
He tells them that relying on your power is the most dangerous faith that you can possess. He warns them in verses 24 through 26 about trusting in their own righteousness. And he illustrates it by giving a scenario. He says, let's, let's say you decide to uh, turn over a new leaf. That's a phrase we like to use, isn't it? I'm going to turn over a new leaf. And I'm going to shave my beard and start over, which you should have never done that, Olus. You look so much better when the beard was on. And your wife agrees with me. Please, for the sake of all of the purity of our eyes, put the beard back on. Now, sometimes we make decisions like that, right? I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to make some adjustments. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to do better. And so this whole idea of turning over a new leaf morally is pictured here in Luke chapter 11 as an unclean spirit moving out of you. You clean things up. You remodel the space. You reorder the furniture. You put a lot of work into it. I mean, you put a lot of work into it. But you're not trusting Jesus. You're trusting yourself. You're cleaning it up. You're working on it. You're remodeling it. You're reordering it. And to you, your power looks pretty good. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the demon hasn't been destroyed. In fact, he now finds your place even more inviting than ever. Not only because you've cleaned things up for him, but because you never filled it with Jesus. Jesus doesn't live there. You've reordered the furniture, yes. You've remodeled the space. You've put a lot of work into it. But Jesus still doesn't occupy your home. So what does the demon do? He goes and he gets seven of his demon friends. And they decide they're all going to move into the place together. And that's why Jesus says in verse 26, look at it. He said, the last state of that person is worse than the first because now he has more evil inside of him than ever before. And here's the point that Jesus is making. Listen carefully. Self-reformation without repentance and the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, is fatal. I'm going to say that again. It's very important. Self-reformation, cleaning yourself up, turning over a new leaf, Relying on your own righteousness without repentance of sin and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God in your life, it always ends in spiritual fatality. Amen. You can clean things up in your power, your strength, your righteousness, but unless Jesus fills you up with his righteousness, then your life will always be ruled by sin. It will always be dominated by evil, no matter how good things may appear to you. I got to move on, but the point Jesus is making in all of these statements is to believe in him because there is no greater power than his, than his. His power is greater than yours. His power is greater than Satan's. His power is greater than all because his power is the finger of God. It's the finger of God. No greater power. That's why you should come to Jesus' side. Secondly, not only because with him there is no greater power, but with him there is no greater sign there's no greater sign, specifically, no greater sign than Scripture. No greater sign than Scripture. Now, you may have noticed that not only was the crowd made up of people who were marveling at Jesus' power and others who were slandering Jesus' identity, but there's also another group of people here who wasn't really satisfied with what they had observed from Jesus. They wanted more signs from him. 
to us if you really are the chosen one of God. In fact, we demand you prove it to us. Give us a sign, more signs. That's what it says in verse 16. Others, to test him, kept seeking from him. They, they kept asking. They wouldn't let it go. They kept wanting a sign from heaven. Now, the irony of this is that Jesus had already given them many incredible signs. But they wanted, listen, different signs. Especially in the political realm. And frankly, because Jesus didn't fit their idea of what the Messiah would look like and be, in bias, they dismissed and ignored the signs that he had already given to them. And this is why Jesus called them in verse 29 an evil generation. They're an evil generation because they deny the truth right before their very eyes. It's evil. Now, you know me. I'm not one to venture into political stuff, but I cannot turn my, my, my eyes away from the things that are happening in Israel. By the way, it's not political when it's happening to Israel. It's biblical when it's happening to Israel. These are biblical issues. And, and, and then, then, then I watch the anti-Semitism rallies that are taking place here in America right now. And when they're approached with the evidence... Well, well, what do you have to say about the, 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 the babies? And I know there are children in here, so I don't want to be too graphic, but you understand. What, what do you have to say about the babies? You know what their response is? Well, prove it to me. Prove it to me. What do you mean prove it to you? The evidence is there. The pictures are there. It's right before your very eyes. The problem is you are choosing not to receive it, to believe it. You don't want to believe it. And that is exactly what's happening here. We want more signs. We want different signs. It wasn't that Jesus did not give them good enough signs. No, it was not that at all. It's that they didn't like the signs that were in front of them. And so they denied the truth right before their very eyes. So Jesus says, look, I'm not going to give you the signs you want. For there's no greater sign, no greater proof than the proof of Scripture. Because Scripture, Jesus says here in these verses, is fulfilled in me. He uses two examples. One is Jonah. Jonah was swallowed by a well, picturing death. He descended into the deep, picturing burial. And then he was delivered up alive three days later, picturing resurrection. And what does Jesus say here in chapter 11? He says, as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. In other words, the Scripture's testimony of Jonah is a sign to the person and work of Jesus. But Jesus goes on to say at the end in verse 32, there is somebody greater than Jonah who is here. He said, I came to die. I came to be buried. I came to rise again for the sins of those who believe. What you were reading about in Jonah had very little to do with Jonah. It had everything to do with me. Look into the scriptures. The scriptures tell you about me. Jonah tells you about me. And then he uses another example. Solomon. Particularly in how the queen of Sheba earnestly sought traveling through a great journey just to come and seek out the wisdom of Solomon, whom the Bible tells us was the wisest man on earth. 
And Jesus says in brevity here in Luke chapter 11, yet something greater than Solomon is here. Right in front of your very eyes. His wisdom came from me. But you still reject me. Jesus said in John chapter 5, search the scriptures. Because in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. And what do the scriptures tell us about Jesus? Well, every book of the Bible is about Jesus. Every book. Oh, I could start in Genesis and tell you he's the promised seed of the woman. We could go to Exodus and tell you he's the Passover lamb. We could go to Leviticus and tell you that he is the greater tabernacle. We could go to Numbers and tell you he's the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. We could go to Deuteronomy and tell you that he's the greatest, greater than Moses. I mean, we could just keep on going. Everything is about Jesus. But one of my favorite summaries in all the Bible of who Jesus is is in Hebrews chapter 1. And let me just summarize it for you. In Hebrews chapter 1, he says that Jesus is the God who speaks. He is the Lord of all things, God in the flesh. He is the one who created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the controller of the universe. He is the sustainer of the universe. He is the atonement and sacrifice for sins. He is the sovereign king who rules in majesty on high. Friends, listen to me this morning. Believe what the scriptures say about Jesus. There is no greater sign than the sign of scripture. And finally, you should be on Jesus' side this morning because through him there is no greater power, there is no greater sign, and thirdly, there is no greater light. There is no greater light, and that is verses 33 through 36 specifically, no greater light than the gospel. No greater light than the gospel. In verses 33 through 36, Jesus illustrates once again the message of his gospel as a light. This is an analogy he loves to use, and it's used differently in different sections of his teaching. But here it stands for the gospel, his message, the good news in which he came to declare. I don't want to ever assume that sitting among us are people who understand clearly the gospel. So let me remind you about what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. He was miraculously born of a virgin. While he lived and walked on this earth, he lived a perfectly sinless life. He carried out a ministry of preaching repentance in the coming kingdom of God. At the age of 33, he became a sacrifice for sin when he was innocently crucified on a Roman cross. He died. He was buried in a tomb. And three days later, he rose again from the dead. And when he rose again from the dead, he rose as the exclusive and victorious means of providing forgiveness of sin and eternal life to anyone who believes on him. That is the gospel. Now, here's the picture that Jesus gives in verses 33 through 36. He says, when your eyes look upon the gospel and believe it by faith, then the gospel light of Jesus comes into your life, removes the darkness, 
awakens you to spiritual life and makes you an eternal child of God. But when your eyes look upon the gospel and reject it, then you will remain in darkness. You will continue to be spiritually dead. And you will have no hope of life with God. And that's the danger here. The danger is when the gospel light is not in you, you are already spiritually dead. Already. And one day you will physically die. And there's a formula for that. Uh, Spiritual death plus physical death equals eternal death. So if you're remaining neutral about Jesus this morning, you are rejecting him. And by rejecting him, you remain spiritually dead. And one day, physical death is going to come to your life, which will result in eternal death. That's the danger of coming to a place like this and seeing the gospel light and still remaining neutral. Still rejecting it. That's why Jesus said in verse 35, this will be the last verse we look at, maybe. Verse 35 says, Therefore be careful lest the light in you be darkness. It's a very simple message, isn't it? Believe in Jesus, have light. Dismiss Jesus, be neutral about Jesus, outright reject Jesus, remain in darkness. There's no greater power than Jesus. There is no greater sign than Scripture. Some of you are waiting, like the Jewish religious leaders, for him to write it in the sky. Jesus says, I'm not going to do that for you. I've already given you a sign. It's the Scriptures. They talk about me. There's no greater sign than this. And there is no greater light than the gospel light. And the gospel light is the only light that can expel darkness. So I lied. There is one more verse. (laughs) And that comes back to verse 23. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There are only two sides, with Jesus or against Jesus. Again, there's no neutrality. There's no middle ground. Well, how do I know I'm on his side? I'm glad you asked. Because one of the evidences we know which side we're on, Jesus says here, is whether or not our lives point people to Jesus, that is, with him we are gathering, or whether our lives point people away from Jesus. That is, we scatter people from the truth. And once again, even in the evidences, there's no middle ground. You, you can't be there saying, well, sometimes I point, sometimes I, I take away. No, 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 no. Jesus says, you're either with me or you're against me. If you're with me, you point people to me. If you're against me, you point people away from me. There's no middle ground. No middle ground. So, 
Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. But they also say in Scripture, there are no neutrals here. So which side are you on? And perhaps that is what you need to look to at the person next to you this morning before you leave and ask the question, which side are you on? Well, the whole purpose of Jesus saying this is to invite us to him, the winning side, the victorious side. And so I invite you to come to Jesus, the right side. And there's only one way to come to him, by faith. Believing his gospel, trusting his word, and experiencing his great. Let's bow our heads together for prayer.